the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 44. If you are using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 38. Page 38, Genesis 44. We preserve the things that we love. So what do you preserve? One of the amazing gifts that my wife gives to our family every year is a yearbook. Yes, a yearbook of photos from the past year as a family. Uh, those yearbooks preserve the delights and sometimes the difficulties that we faced as a family. The yearbook preserves in photo form the love that God has shown to us and the love that we've been privileged to show each other and share as a family. So if you have been to my house, you know that I have a library that I, I care a little bit about. Uh, but if we had a house fire after getting my wife and kids out, those family yearbooks would be the yearbooks or the books that I care about most and would try to preserve first. They're precious and irreplaceable. We preserve the things we love. And God preserves the people that he loves. That's what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from Genesis chapters 44 and 45. Here, we not only see that God preserves the people that he loves, but as Joseph tells the story, God had a plan to preserve those people that he loves. These chapters that we're looking at are in the middle of the final major section of the book of Genesis, which unfolds how God is keeping his promises to Jacob and his family. Since chapter 37, though, there's been a rift in the family. Ten sons have sold one son, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, into slavery. God exalted Joseph to second in command in Egypt, and though they don't know it, the brothers have now been before Joseph twice. In our last study in the book of Genesis, we saw God lead the family down two more steps toward reconciliation and reunion with their brother. And all of this has been part of God's plan to preserve his people, to rescue them from the famine that has set in. This morning, we see Joseph's kind of big reveal and a sweet reunion between the brothers. But in order for this to happen, the brothers must pass one more test first. A test from Joseph, the final really and most difficult test, which will disclose whether or not they're really changed men, men who are truly sorrowful for their sin. And the teaching of this text, the, the message that Moses really wanted to communicate to his first audience is that God, he leads his people to repentance. God preserves a remnant so that God's people can hope in his promises. So, beloved, here's the, the sermon in a sentence, the, the point of the passage that it makes to you. God preserves you through his perfect providence. God preserves you through his perfect providence. And the application of that truth to, to your soul should mean that you should confess your sin freely, should give thanks to your salvation that God has won. And that you should always hope in your living Savior who's promised to come again and bring you to himself. There should be a full outline in the bulletin that may help you to follow along. Let's begin with our first point that God leads us to repentance. Under this heading, we're really going to consider all of chapter 44 in the book of Genesis. But for now, I'm just going to read the first 17 verses. So follow along now as I read Genesis 44 verses 1 to 17. Then he, that's Joseph, then he commanded the steward of his house, 
Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. So when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks. We brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then can we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant. And the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What, what shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so, for only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now you'll remember that chapter 43, chapter before, closed with the brothers feasting and drinking and being merry with Joseph. All of this was wisely designed by Joseph to prepare the brothers for their last and final test. Would they sell Benjamin out, just like they sold Joseph out? Every step of Joseph's interaction with his brothers up to this point led to this final test. And we can be sure that God's providential hand was superintending all of this. Reconciliation and reunion with the brothers in God's plan includes repentance for them. So in verses 1 to 5, we're told how Joseph and his steward, they set up the test. Just as before, their sacks are stuffed with grain and with the silver that they brought. But as verse 2 shows us, one more thing was placed in Benjamin's sack, Joseph's silver cup. And verse 3 tells us that they were sent away on their precious donkeys. They had come to Egypt worried that they wouldn't be able to get Simeon out of the slammer. And they were worried that something might happen to Benjamin on the way. But they're all headed home, safe and sound. And that's when Joseph, he sends his steward after them. And the goal is to discover the cup in Benjamin's sack, to accuse them of evil, and to bring them all back. And that's really what just happens in verses 6 to 13. Here is the steward, who at one time spoke a gracious word of peace to them, coming and arriving in haste and delivering this abrasive message from Joseph, just as he directed. He accuses them of betraying Joseph's generosity and stealing Joseph's cup. Now observe the brother's solidarity 
in verses 7 to 9. With one voice, they vehemently object to the accusation. They've taken anything from Joseph. They so trust one another's integrity. They so believe in one another's innocence that they rashly tell the servant to put to death the one who has the cup. This is an offer that their father made. It's one just like Jacob made when his beloved wife, Rachel, had stolen her father Laban's household gods back in Genesis 31. They're doing exactly what their father did years before. Jacob endangered the life of his beloved wife, and he didn't know it. And now the brothers are endangering the life of their father's beloved son, and they don't know it. But that's not all. Not only do they offer for one man to die, but they offer for all of them to become Joseph's slaves. This is how confident they are in one another's integrity and innocence. They clearly don't have a grasp of the doctrine of radical depravity. Joseph's steward doesn't agree to the deal. He renegotiates it, you see. He'll claim as a servant the man in whose sack the cup is found, but the rest, they're going to be innocent. He recognizes that justice is limited to those who are actually guilty, those who actually committed the crime, and not simply those who are associated with the guilty. This is a principle of justice that needs to be grasped in our society today, too. Notice how the steward works from the eldest to the youngest there in verse 12. Do you see that? Do you remember how at dinner the night before, they were alarmed by the fact that they had been seated perfectly in age order? Concern is probably growing because the steward is getting closer and closer to their father's most beloved son. And as it just so happens, the steward finds the cup in Benjamin's sack, right where he had placed it. And here's the test. The brothers have the perfect opportunity to once again let their dad's favorite son be carried off into the Egyptian sunset, just like they did with Joseph. But do you remember the last time that happened? When Jacob's favorite son was carried off, sold to Egypt? In Genesis chapter 37, verse 29, only one brother, Reuben, tore his robe. The last time, all of them were glad to see Joseph gone. This time, there's a difference. You see how God is leading them to repentance? All of them tear their clothes in grief. They, they don't take the grain and go. Instead, in verse 13, every man loads his donkey and they go back to the city. They're in this together. God has clearly been at work in their hearts, leading them to confess and acknowledge their guilt. Moving toward that city together was another step of God leading his people to repentance. And notice how Moses, he kind of brings Judah to the forefront again there in verse 14. Judah was the one who pledged Benjamin's safety back in Genesis 43. But he was also the one who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery back in Genesis 37. Repentance will be displayed when Judah moves from salesman to substitute. And notice that Joseph, he puts the pressure on the brothers there in verse 15. He speaks of practicing divination by this silver cup. But this is all a part of the ruse. Joseph wasn't practicing ancient Egyptian witchcraft. But he could providentially see. He could divine the future. God had revealed the future to Joseph in his dreams and in the dreams of others. God gave Joseph the supernatural insight to understand what it meant and that the famine was coming. Judah, speaking on behalf of the brothers there in verse 16, he tells Joseph that there's, there's nothing they can say except that God has found out their guilt. 
Judah is clearly referring to how they sold Joseph into slavery because they weren't guilty of stealing Joseph's cup. This is now the second time that the brothers have confessed their guilt in Joseph's presence. This is one of the first steps of repentance, honestly confessing your guilt. Not just saying you're sorry, but that you're wrong. You've broken God's law. And God in his grace, he has been chasing these brothers down and leading them to repentance. All the situations that Joseph had been putting them in, God has been using to, to pressure them to see that they've sinned against God and against their brother. And they ought to repent of it. Friend, I wonder, has, has God in his grace been chasing you down? Has he been gently showing you your sin and your guilt before him? Do your sins actually bother your conscience? Are you concerned about them? Friend, God has found out your guilt, as Judah confesses here. He knows everything that you have ever done. Nothing is hidden from him. And the reason why God exposes your guilt and calls you to express your guilt by confessing your sin is because God wants you to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't merely want you to feel sorrow for your sin. He wants you to find forgiveness in Jesus. That's where all of this leads, to brothers who are reconciled because forgiveness has been extended by Joseph. Do you want to be reconciled to God? Do you want to be forgiven of your sin? Then follow the path that God is leading you down. Confess your sin and turn away from it and turn to his son. Notice that Judah offered not only Benjamin, but for all of the brothers to come into Joseph's service. Like the steward in verse 17, Joseph, he rejects that offer. That would be an unjust punishment for the crime. One man took the cup, and one man will suffer the punishment. Of course, this is Joseph giving the brothers one last out. He even tells them to go in peace to their father. Here's your opportunity to leave, guys. Go in peace to your father. Here's the final phase of this test from Joseph. They can leave free of any responsibility. Joseph has so arranged the events that his brothers can walk away from Benjamin. They can even tell their father, look, the cup was found in his sack. There was nothing that we can do. He took it. But it is Joseph's mention of their father that prompts Judah's speech in verses 18 to 34, the second half of the chapter. In these verses, Judah mentions Jacob, his father, roughly 14 times. God has been using Joseph's prompts and prods about their father to lead them to repentance. So, so follow along now as I read verses 18 to 34. Pick up there in verse 18. Then Judah went up to him, this is Joseph, and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father? Or a brother. And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's, his mother's children. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went 
back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when, we, and when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So in these verses, Judah rehearses the history of what has transpired to bring them to this point. And then he explains, on the basis of that history, why he must take his brother's place. The special goal of Judah's rehearsal of history, really especially in verses 18 to 29, is to honor Joseph and then to underscore just how much Jacob loves Benjamin. I mean, notice in verse 18 that Judah calls himself a servant while exalting Joseph by saying that he's like Pharaoh. Then he moves to kind of arouse Joseph's sympathy. Twice in verse 20, Judah says that his father is an old man. And he underscores the suffering that Jacob's already endured in his life in losing one of his sons. Judah highlights for Joseph the fact that Benjamin, this child of Jacob's old age, is deeply loved by his father. Amazingly, Judah has come to terms with the fact that he is not loved like Benjamin is loved. If you look closely at this word, really in verses 27 and 28, you'll notice that Judah acknowledges the fact that Jacob has lived as though he's only had one wife and two sons. That means that Judah recognizes that Jacob has treated Leah, his mother, and her children like chopped liver. And we've seen Jacob do that, right? He's exclaimed, you know, I've only got one son left, right to those boys standing in front of him, those men, actually. In verse 29, Judah even stresses for Joseph that Jacob has tied his life to Benjamin's life. If Benjamin dies, Jacob dies. That's how much Jacob loves Benjamin. Judah, as I said, recognizes that he's not loved like that. And despite that, Judah still loves his father. Do you recognize that? That's why he's pleading with Joseph. Though it was wrong for Jacob to play favorites, Judah has accepted the fact, and he still loves his father and pleads on his father's behalf. Beloved, sometimes in life, you are going to have to learn to love those who have wronged you. And that wrong might never be righted or even recognized in this life. You can hold on to that wrong and let it destroy you. You can be angry and bitter and blame God. Or you can ask God for the grace to let love cover over a multitude of sins. You can let the wrong destroy you or you can devote yourself 
to loving that person the way that God has loved you. Now, in verses 30 to 34, Judah explains to Joseph that because of his father's age and his love for the boy, that he must take the place of Benjamin. That's the function of the therefore there in verse 30. Just take in what Judah is saying from a few phrases in these verses. In verse 30, he says that Jacob's life is bound up with the boy's life. In verse 31, he says that if Jacob doesn't see Benjamin, if he doesn't lay his eyes on him, he will die. In verse 32, Judah even offers Joseph information that he didn't have to give. That he pledged, that Judah pledged Benjamin's safety. There was a pact, an agreement between the father and the son, between Jacob and Judah for the safety of Benjamin. Judah, he offers himself as a substitute for the condemned in verse 33. God has moved Judah from sinful salesman to sacrificial substitute. And notice that Judah also boldly asks for the release of all of his brothers along with Benjamin. One will suffer so that many may go free. I wonder, do you see how Judah is a type and shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see how Judah points forward to Jesus? Do you realize that the Father and the Son made a pact in eternity past to save sinners like you and me? We can see this in a number of places in Scripture, but but listen to, to Jesus in John chapter 6, verses 30 to 40. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Did you hear what Jesus said? Jesus said that he came down from heaven with a mission, a predetermined mission to do the will of God the Father. Jesus has already been given a people to redeem, a people to save. Jesus voluntarily agreed to accomplish this predetermined mission and plan. He pledged himself for sinners. He offered himself as a substitute for the condemned. While Benjamin was innocent, we are actually guilty. We have sinned against God. We have taken things that we should not have taken. We have lied and deceived. We've lusted. We've dishonored our parents. We've profaned God's name. We have sinned against the eternal God. And so we deserve to face his eternal punishment in hell. But Jesus offered himself as a substitute, as a sacrifice for sinners like us. On the cross, Jesus took our condemnation and our death so that we may go free. I mean, that's why we sang earlier, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. And that Jesus was raised from the grave three days after his death on the cross proves that he has the power to set us free from the consequences of sin and death. Friend, have you repented of your sin? Have you confessed your guilt before God? Have you trusted in Jesus? Do you see how he is your only hope before the throne of God? Oh, repent of your sin. Turn from your sin and believe that Jesus is your substitute, your Savior. Believe that Jesus lived for you, that he died for you, that he was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. If God is leading you down the path of repentance and redemption in Jesus Christ, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member or a coworker who invited you here this morning. 
There's nothing more important that we'd love to talk to you about this morning than this good news, that we can be redeemed and reconciled to Jesus and received into the family of God. Now, the question that's before us with this text is, what's going to happen? Right? What's going to happen now that these brothers have confessed their guilt and Judah has offered himself as a substitute for Benjamin, how will Joseph respond? Well, in Genesis 45, verses 1 to 15, we not only see the forgiveness that Joseph offers to his brothers, but also how the hidden hand of God has preserved his people all along the way and will continue to preserve them. God leads us to repentance and he preserves us. He saves us and preserves us by his providence. This is our second point. God preserves us by his providence. Follow along now as I read Genesis 45, verses 1 to 15. Genesis 45, verses 1 to 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. These verses, they are incredibly sweet. Uh, they include the revelation of Joseph, the recognition of God's purpose and providence and all of their history, as well as the formal reconciliation of the brothers. Joseph, he's, he's clearly overwhelmed and moved there in verses 1 and 2. Now before, in Genesis 43, Joseph had to leave the room to weep, but now he clears the room. He tells everyone except his brothers to leave. And before he utters a word, we're told that he weeps so loudly, in fact, that the Egyptians and Pharaoh heard it. While the first words out of his mouth are, I'm Joseph, they're immediately followed by this question, is my father still alive? Judah's speech and the nearly 14 references to Jacob have deeply affected Joseph. The brothers, though, 
they're uncertain about what to do, right? Verse 3 tells us they're dismayed at his presence. And that word for dismayed means that they were terrified, they were, they were troubled, they were afraid. And at the height of their fear, Joseph tells them to draw near. Now, isn't that what God does with us? I mean, when he convinces us of our sin and our misery and the danger it places us in under his wrath, doesn't he say, draw near to me and be forgiven? Is that what you do when you forgive someone? Do you invite them to draw near to you? Do you purpose to end the relational war that's been raging? When you're sinned against and you forgive, do you eliminate the distance that has been created by sin? What a kind and tender response Joseph has to his brother's fear there. As Joseph explains who he is there in verse 4, he also explains what God has been doing, really in verses 5 to 13. Yes, the brothers sold Joseph into Egypt, but God sent him. Do you see that in verse 5? The brothers sold Joseph, but God sent Joseph. The brothers carried out their plan, and God was carrying out his plan through the brothers. God was ruling over their evil and overruling their evil for his saving purposes. This is what we call the doctrine of providence. As the old catechism says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. Joseph recognized what God was doing, and he was helping his brothers to see it too. As big a deal as it was, there was something even larger going on than simply God reconciling a rift between the family. The brothers procured silver when they sold Joseph, but God was procuring their salvation. That language of preserving life in verse 5 and keeping alive in verse 7, it was used in the flood narrative with Noah, right? In the flood, God used Noah to preserve life, to keep a remnant alive. And that's what God was doing here through Joseph. So like the flood, the famine threatened to wipe out the people of God. So God chose one man who he would use to preserve his people from death. And so keep alive his promises of sending his Messiah through them, through their family. God was in control of every action, every event, and every person and every decision that was made. The brothers' hands were swift to sin. That's what they did. Meanwhile, God was working out his purposes of salvation. And Joseph is not pointing to himself. Did you notice this? Joseph is not saying, I preserved you. He's not saying, I saved you. Preservation and salvation come from God. He is saying, God preserved you. God has saved you. This is what God has done by his perfect providence. Do you realize that our God has done the same thing in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, this is what Peter testifies to on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, verses 23 to 24, Peter says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Did you hear what Peter said? Peter said that they, the, the Romans and the Jews in Jerusalem, they put Jesus to death. And he says, this was all a part of God's sovereign, predetermined and eternally decreed plan. Peter sees that God rules over sin, and overrules sin for the salvation of God's people. Preservation and salvation come from God. It is what God does by his 
perfect providence. And isn't it wonderful that Joseph tells his brothers not to be distressed or angry with themselves? There in verse 5. Isn't that a kind thing for Joseph to say to them? He's trying to relieve them of the immense emotional burden that they feel. He was trying to help them see the, the grand nature of God's plan. God was doing something gracious and good even in their immensely evil acts. When Joseph says there in verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's saying that God was the ultimate cause of his journey to Egypt. They were secondary causes, but God was the first and primary cause of sending him to Egypt. As you think about this, realize that as, as the Puritans used to say, we can only read the hand of providence backwards. In other words, it's only after all is said and done that we can see how God was weaving history together. Brothers and sisters, this is why when life is dark, you have to trust that God's providential hand is doing something. You may not be able to see it in the darkness. You may not be able to see it today. But one day you will. That means that you should trust him and hold on to him in the darkness. The worst thing that you could do in the midst of the darkness is push God away, push his word away. Hold on to God, who will never let you go. In the darkness, let his word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. What is more, God's providence ought to spur you to forgive like Joseph. Because you can believe that God is doing something. You can be busy doing what is right and righteous in that moment. You can even offer forgiveness to your enemies. Joseph is living out what we read earlier in the service from Luke chapter 6. Remember when Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you? I mean, his brothers hated him. When they put him in that pit, they sat down to eat a meal callously and coldly. Jesus said, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Joseph is not holding his brother's sins over their heads. So when you forgive, you must purpose to think really charitable thoughts about the one that you're forgiving. You must purpose not to be angry and bitter with them because that's not how God has dealt with you and forgiven you. When you forgive, you, you must commit to not hurt the person that has sinned against you. You must not pursue revenge or use their sins to hurt them. That's devilish, not divine. That's not how God has forgiven you. When you forgive, you must not go around spreading the story of a person's sin. Don't go and gossip. Love covers over a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4.8 When you forgive, you must not remain distant or, or punish with silence or give the cold shoulder, but by God's grace and in time, renew the relationship. I mean, look at what Joseph does there in verses 9 to 13. He tells his brothers to go and get their father. Why? You see it in verse 10? So that they can be near him. Verse 11, so that he can provide for them. God's providence is going to continue to preserve them through Joseph's position, through his wise stewarding, even in the midst of this famine. Joseph, he not only loves his brothers and forgives his brothers, but he does good to them. Isn't that how Jesus deals with us? When Jesus forgives us, he invites us to draw near to him. He invites us to trust that he will continue to preserve us unto the end. Do you see how Joseph foreshadows our Savior too? With such a full understanding of God's providence, 
and how the sovereign Lord has preserved them all and will continue to preserve them all. The brothers, they're reconciled there in verses 14 to 15. Here are grown men falling upon one another's necks, kissing, embracing, and weeping. Joseph wants to drive home the fullness of his forgiveness. And so in verse 15, we're told that he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. He forgave every last one of them and the role that each of them played in their sin against him. And, and you might think that verse 15 kind of is a dud, right? It, it ends on a boring manner. After this, his brothers talked with him. Well, if you thought that, you'd be missing on how this comment takes us right back to the very beginning of the whole saga. Uh, after Moses, the, the author of Genesis, introduced the favoritism of, uh, that Jacob had toward Joseph, he told us this in Genesis 34, verse 7. But when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, they hated Joseph and could not even speak peacefully to him. They couldn't speak a word to him. In the past, they couldn't talk with him, but now their relationship has been fully healed and restored. Now they can talk with Joseph. God's providence has not only preserved their lives and will continue to preserve their lives, but it has preserved their family. And thus, God has preserved his promises because he is going to send the Messiah through this family, this family that's been reconciled together. God intends to reunite this family and revive their hopes in his promises. So let's turn and consider our third and final point. God revives us by keeping his promises. Follow along as I read Genesis 45, verses 16 to 28. Genesis 45, verses 16 to 28. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take the wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones. And for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for all the best of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons, according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go to see him before I die. Well, these verses, they unfold for us the favor of Pharaoh, the return of the brothers, and the reviving of Jacob. One of the remarkable things that we've seen in the book of Genesis is how God has blessed his people through Egypt. So back in Genesis 12, when Abraham left Egypt 
the Lord weighed him down with blessing. And here in verses 16 to 20, Pharaoh promises to give Joseph and his family the best of the land and the fat of the land. God, of course, had used Joseph to enrich Egypt beyond measure. Because of the famine, because of Joseph's uh, foresight, his wise planning, all of the nations came to Egypt to buy food from them. They were enriching Egypt. So Pharaoh was immensely grateful to Joseph. And so he tells Joseph, like, bring all your family here and I will bless them. Here too is God's guiding providential hand. And think about the first audience reading this book. The people of Israel on their way out of Egypt headed into the promised land of Canaan. They were reading this book. They would have recognized that this was part of God's fulfillment of God's promises. So, so back in Genesis 15, when God was making a covenant with Abraham, he promised that his offspring would be sojourners in a land that was not theirs for 400 years. And in time, they would be afflicted and enslaved like Joseph was. But in the end, God would bring them out with great possessions just as he promised. Beloved, think about the greatness of our God. Through Joseph's history, he brought about the salvation of his family from famine. Then, hundreds of years later, he would keep his promise to save the whole nation of Israel from slavery by bringing them up out of Egypt and enriching them. God providentially preserved his people from the famine, and he would providentially preserve his people in Egypt. His promises would not fail. Our God is a God who can do anything that he wants to do, and what he has purposed to do is to keep his promises to his people. You can trust him. You can praise him. In view of our God's powerful providence, we should say what we sang earlier, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. I mean, who could have thought of this plan to rescue Jacob and his family from famine in Egypt? Who could have thought of the plan that we know that God laid out to send his son? Let the greatness of our God and his promise-keeping nature revive your hopes in the truth that in the end it is our Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Pharaoh, he wants to be sure that Joseph's family comes to his kingdom. And so he sends his royal wagons with the brothers to transport their people. With all that Pharaoh promised, the brothers set out on their journey home there in verses 21 to 25. And notice that as they go, they're given a change of clothes. I mean, this is useful given that they tore their robes in grief when they thought that Benjamin was going to be enslaved. But it's another signal too. The new robes harken back to Joseph's robe, that robe that ripped the family apart. The brothers had removed that robe from Joseph. They held it ripped before their father and deceived him. But here are all of the brothers, re-robed, living as a reconciled and restored family. Isn't that what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, given us the robes of his righteousness so that we can stand before him? Joseph, he piles the blessings on Benjamin. Joseph was now completely comfortable doing so as the brothers were now submissive to God's providence and content with their status in Jacob's eyes and the family. They were truly changed men, and the change of clothes signaled that. What is incredibly intriguing is that Joseph, what he says to them as they depart, did you catch this little kind of comment from Joseph in verse 24? Do not quarrel on the way. Now, you read the people, the history of the people of Israel, like walking through the wilderness, they're always quarreling. But these brothers, the last time they were on their way home from Egypt, they quarreled. Uh, in Genesis 42, verse 22, Reuben played that blame game, and he said, I told you so. 
This time around, you can imagine them saying, well, it was you who first complained about dad's favoritism, right? It was you who suggested we kill him. Yeah, but you were the one who suggested we sold him. You can imagine them having this conversation. It was you. It was your idea. Or you failed to do this, or you did that. These are often words that stir up strife rather than produce peace. Going over old ground, playing the blame game, when a matter has long been settled by the Lord, is usually unfruitful. As we are headed home to glory, we should try to quarrel as little as possible. Beloved, at some point, you are going to have to decide if you're going to be a peacemaker in your relationship, or if you're going to stir up strife. If you are going to destroy your relationship, or build it up. You might say to me, Mike, you don't know how hard it is. Maybe, but at least don't make it harder by your own sin and strife. Joseph, he is encouraging an Ephesians 4.32 attitude here. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Joseph is trying to help the brothers understand that it's, it's no use for them to quarrel since all that has transpired has been according to the plan of the Lord. Blaming one another accomplishes nothing. It's destructive rather than productive. And in verse 25, we see the brothers arrive. They tell Jacob that Joseph is alive. And in verse 27, we're told that Jacob's heart, it becomes numb. Uh, the idea is that he was, uh, he was dumbstruck. He couldn't believe it. And I think the mention of his heart is a, is a key detail. Think back to when Joseph reported his dreams to his father and brothers. Back in Genesis 37, do you remember what we were told then? Nobody believed Joseph. I mean, Jacob's certainly not believing him now. But we're told that Jacob actually kept the saying in his heart, in mind, really in his mind. How could Joseph be alive and be the ruler of all of Egypt? Is he, is he really the one who, as his dreams said, will bow down to? How could... How could Joseph be alive? Only if God has kept his promises to the boy in his dreams. How would he have done that? Well, God, by his perfect providence, would have done that. In verse 27, we're told about two things that convinced Jacob. Joseph's words that are relayed to him and Joseph's wagons. This is what moves him from being a father who had died inside to a father who had been revived. It is the fulfillment of God's promises through his living son that revives his hopes. This is the pair that God uses to revive our hopes, his word and his works. Our great God, our promise-making, promise-keeping God is able to perform all that he promises. Through the power of his providence, God is able to keep, and he does keep, every word of his work. Like Jacob was moved to go and see his living son, so we should be moved to make our journey to see our living Lord. He's alive, and he's reigning on the throne. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude, that our journey home should be propelled by the reality of our living and reigning Lord. God's providence, it savingly preserves us, and it propels us as his people. God's providence safely preserved the family of Jacob. It propelled Jacob to go and see the son that he loved. Beloved, do you desire to see the son who was dead but is now alive? 
Do you desire to see the object of your heart's affections? Do you desire to see Jesus? Rejoice in this truth, that the providence that first saved you is the providence that keeps you safe unto the end and keeps you going to that end. Think about what Jacob was about to face on his journey, a long and difficult journey as a man of his old age. He might be 130 years old by now, but the love of his son compelled him to make that difficult journey. Jacob was ready to leave everything that was cozy and comfortable for him and to take everything and everyone with him. Who are you going to bring on this journey home to glory, to see the living Lord? What about you? Are you willing to forsake all comforts, to endure the difficulty that lies ahead, and to make your way home to Jesus because he's worth everything? Are you ready to put on a new robe like the brothers, to put on that robe of Jesus' righteousness and run to him? Are you ready to say with the Apostle Paul, whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Beloved, rejoice that God in his providence has saved you. Rejoice that God in his providence will preserve you because he loves you. We preserve the things we love, and God preserves the people that he loves. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your wonder-working love toward us in Jesus Christ. What an amazing gift and privilege you have given us in your Son. What great and precious promises we have that you will love us, that you will keep loving us, that you will never stop loving us, and that heaven will be a world of love with you. Father, we pray and ask for the grace to persevere, and we pray and ask that you would continue to preserve us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.